Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is part two of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moat. Here, there be dragons. Our opening song is the instrumental version of Up Against the Wall, City Slick Mix by Group Home. In Marie-Louise Berneri's Journey Through Utopia, written in 1950, she opens with a dissection of the reactionary authoritarianism of Plato's Republic, in which the state must create a mythology of divinity and purity in its guardian class to mystify the masses. Berneri writes, Throughout history one sees that the existence of a state implies the division of society into classes, but that the ruling class does not necessarily owe its power to its economic wealth, but to an ideology which clothes it with a superior power, maintained by the use of armed forces. In our three-part series with Rasul Mowat about his book, The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, it's our goal to demystify the state, which is not a tangible entity, but a fiction, like Plato's Guardians, designed to allow a ruling elite to maintain power. The focus in this episode is on the history of the city as it evolved from the 16th century to the present, beginning with the Spanish Empire in Mexico City. It's in the city where we can most readily perceive the mechanisms of power maintenance, from the design of streets into grids and the creation of a central plaza, to the labeling of physical traits as identifiers of types of people and the spaces where they are allowed to live, thus solidifying and naturalizing those identifications such as Indios, Negros, and Mestizos. The template for the very city you are living in, even if we classify it as a town instead, comes directly from the laws of the Indies, the body of law promulgated by the Spanish crown between the 16th and 18th centuries for the government of its colonies outside Europe, chiefly in the Americas. It contains 6,377 laws in nine books, subdivided into 218 chapters, covering the formation and practice of such things as church government and education, political and military administration, municipal and provincial government and lower courts, penal law, public finance, and commerce. These decrees are the basis for the ideological underpinnings of what we consider correct ways to structure and order populations. In fact, the practice of life within these structures shapes the ways we think about the world and each other, and all of this in the service of the mythical state. And now, here there be dragons. Part two of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moa on Interchange on WFHB. (laughs) 
So for this conversation, we're going to look at the history of the city, which is how a city is evolved out of other spatial forms and why, to what purpose. I think I'm getting that right. Like Correct. a city evolves. Absolutely. In, yeah. So cities just don't pop up. They are a different kind of thing before they become the kind of thing that you're talking about as far as cities. And yeah, and that was the intent. Um, so of course, as we kind of mentioned in the first episode, after this introduction about the state between us, um, trying to set the stage. Um, and we talked about the state, and I'm sure we'll continue to always talk about the state. Um, this first chapter um, after that um, speaks to thinking about the city historically um, and in the longer form and without um, having that sort of foundation of thinking about the city historically, we can't really get into more contemporary uh, dynamics Um you know, like in terms of redlining and zoning right. and the violence that occurs within cities that, um, as we know it. Right, right. The the actual shape of the city matters and how it gets to be, how it is affects how we are as well. So Correct. Now, you begin really by disagreeing with the idea that history often repeats itself as if history is a category of nature, which is, you know, things will just recur uh, as if the organizational patterns we have were natural as well. And this is the idea that, um, you know, you're doomed to repeat it if you don't understand it or you don't know it. Of course, what is it we're repeating? Right. Yes. As you already mentioned, it alludes to some sense that um, history just a, is a naturally occurring thing. Um, and so, one, we're helpless um, right. in terms of what is happening on a, uh, any given sort of basis, but also the things that occur within that history may also be natural. Right. Uh, there's always been white supremacy or patriarchy or housing segregation, right, or whatever else. And I want to sort of counter that point in the sense that, one, history as a sort of field and area of or thinking comes from cultures, uh, but also more specifically when we sort of look at what has happened in history and what has happened in previously, is there a more direct connection? Um, and if there is a direct connection, then that may mean that it's not really a, re a repeat. Mm -hmm. um, this is a part of maybe a cycle, a series, or a program. And then the other regards is uh, within that sort of idea of thinking about the things that are constantly repeating that we see uh, within history, where is it coming from? What are the structures that are producing that? So I disagree that history repeats itself, but I mentioned the point that power is the thing that actually repeats right. itself and specifically state power. I'm trying to then look at ways in which what I call historical reoccurrences of power and power maintenance. Um, so I'm trying mm -hmm. to see one specific forms of power in this particular case, the state. How has one state function and how has another state function and are there similarities? Are there also relationships between those states? Um, whether that's been uh, amicable with handshakes and agreements or has there been warfare and one state has sort of consumed not only the territory, but all of the archives and policies of the previous state. Um, so I'm calling what I think people may want to get at is historical reoccurrence of power or historical reoccurrence of power maintenance. Mm -hmm. One of the things that uh, you know, we've kind of touched on, uh, just the sort of the thing that a city has to become a city, right? The, there isn't just, cities aren't just there all of a sudden through time. There's a kind of thing we could see as a, a, a 
as a like the Ur city, right? <laughs> right. Right. You know, I fell in love at one point with Gilgamesh because of the mm. romance of mm. the first literature mm. kind of thing, right? Plus, it's it's a great poem, right? And yeah. it's you know you can't deny that literary power, but it's also a map of state power too, in an interesting way. It tells you the things that are being done symbolically, figuratively in the poem, like defeating the forest god is actually cutting down the trees for the mm-hmm. most part mm-hmm. you know, to denude the land for resources for, yeah. the, for yeah. the city state of Ur. Or there is kind of a history of that that formation, right? So in Mesopotamia, there are places where people become slaves mm. or enslaved people to serve that particular elite at that point as well. So the city isn't a, a new thing, really. Not at all. Right? So, so the idea of states and cities do kind of go hand in hand, right? Like I was thinking, you know, is there one without the other? Well, no, uh, <laughs> at least in terms of how I'm trying to right. conceptualize it. So um, just because there's an elite class that forms because of their desire to maintain their position due to their ability to harness resources or whatever else, doesn't mean that they automatically will create a state. You know, some will just try to maintain their position in other ways, right? right. Um, so the state is a particular thing that's created at a um, at a sort of juncture in time. We can sort of think about sometimes feudal as a sort of period in which the state, as we sort of uh, think of it as an economic generator um, that focuses all of this power, um, takes shape and it really expands itself when feudalism sort of transitions to colonialism or and capitalism. Mm-hmm. What's important of thinking about cities then is that while it's something that has always existed for quite some time, you know, um, as we sort of built settlements around places that we can sort of get resources like a right. pond, right? Right. Uh, and so forth, they grow and they expand. And so I'm not saying that, you know, cities are a new thing that begins in 1400s, 1500s, um, you know, whether it's whether Thebes or Tenochtitlan, right? Yeah, yeah. You, know, you know, it's just one of those things where the city is present. But the other part um, that I'm trying to make the point of is the city as we know it does not exist during those periods of time. When we sort of think about not only the physical design and layout, but how a city sort of begins to function, takes shapes at a specific part of time. And I think when we think about colonialism um, and the need to build it up and expand, the settlement quickly grows into something. And I call it the Colonial City Project. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is part two of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moat, author of The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge. Our focus is on the evolution of the colonial city as developed and codified by the Spanish Empire, a design that has persisted ever since. settlement begins with what we can sort of think about the tents, you know, in a space and we can kind of go into more specifics, you know, uh, hopefully a little bit later when we yeah. talk about the laws of the Indies specifically. Mm-hmm. But as those tents take shape, you know, more physical, more permanent structures are built up and those permanent structures need some type of organization around them, um, some relationship, you know, with them. And as they begin to build, then also more people are sort of brought into that location. And that is the way in which uh, the modern city, as we know it, takes shape in colonialism what I argue, and the influences of trying to manage and design those colonial cities are not only plagiarized by newer states or competing states, Mm -hmm. you know, 
the the ways in which the colonial city is designed and managed is then the techniques of that are then brought back to what I call imperial cities, which are these older cities, whether they're in Mannheim, Germany, or uh, or the places in France and England and, and elsewhere. Some of those techniques, and so as we sort of then begin to see some of those cities expand, then all of a sudden their design takes shape in a very different way, and we can look that look at maps and so on that right. show us you know, maybe how um, Seville or Sevilla, you know, once looked, you know, initially, but come some periods of time of managing various colonies, then we see then outside of the city center, all of a sudden we begin to see the grids. And the grid is something that is first sort of uh, put into place in the colonies. So you mentioned maps there, um, or being able to sort of track over time how maps develop and and how the the cities are seen in those maps, the states represented as countries or nations or territory. So the map is an interesting thing to think about, and it's it's a good way into this uh, particular chapter. And the way you actually go into this chapter is to begin with the globe or the map uh, and how you know it comes to us and we and we think about it, but how it's thought about at the time as well. What is it describe? Who's it describing? Uh, who's it for? You know, I often think of, you know, just maps at the time. I think, well, these are just for explorers. You know, mm-hmm. who else is going to use a map? Yeah. But they're more than that. And they're commissioned too. And Correct. It's, it's a thing that, again, what is a, a, the infrastructures of these processes fade into the background of our yeah, of our completely. thinking. A map is a map. It's it's right. got no nefarious purposes, does it? Right. Right. But yeah. it becomes a skill and a trade and is commissioned and uh and that means that they're paid. Um and they're paid to not only get it right, but get it in a way in which the person who's commissioned it wants it to right. be depicted. Um but yeah, exactly. We don't think of all of that. We just sort of have these maps and the information or the depictions on that maps just happen to be there. You know, you begin with the idea of the the, the space on the map that was identified by uh dragons or, you know, here yeah. there be dragons, which I think is also probably in a Blake poem or a Stephen King novel as well, right? Yeah, uh, so yeah. so the uh the idea that you know, you ask yourself, did they believe in dragons? Dragons are a like mythical thing that we think people believed in. Did map makers for the state or from for power think that there were dragons in these places? Right. You know, so so I think that kind of continues the question of, well, who is commissioning these? And so it's not just like a regular person who wants to go on a road trip. <laughs> you know, let me commission somebody to drop a map. You know, people who were in power, you know, widespread power were the ones that were uh, drawing upon uh, these various cartographers to um, depict what they ruled over the territories of their particular spaces. When we start seeing these maps that are f- sort of first depicted, they are um, depicting the, that that power, right? The lands that and the territories that they control, and then there's a beyond, mm-hmm. and the beyond are places in which they do not control. It's not enough just to leave that blank um, that has to have some type of representation. Sometimes it's just mountains, some dangerous mountain valleys, some forested area. But when then we begin to see some images of creatures, now they're sort of conveying some type of meaning. Some people simplistically just think that um, they had some superstition right. of mythical creatures, and that's why they put that there. But why on the edge? Right. Well, you know, it's always on the edge. Right. right. It's never within the uh, the spaces of control. And right. so, you know, the dragons and the uh, large elephants with massive tusks or and uh, fire breathing lions and so on 
are some of the earliest depictions of the other, mm. the other that's beyond our kingdom. Um, and I are also argue that besides setting in motion the first sort of forms of identifying a foreign population, mm-hmm. it's also sort of alluding to then we must take care of these things that are in our way. Mm. Um, you know, so in some cases, get over our fears and to conquer those particular spaces. It's a space that you have to move into to be in control of your particular destiny also as, right. as a ruling power. Right. So so it's the unknown, but it's not the unknown yeah. to just leave alone <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> at all. Right. It's time for a break. This is Public Enemy with Show Em What You Got. From the 1988 release, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. More with Rasul Moat on the city as materialization of state domination when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. In this segment of part two of The State Made Visible, we begin to detail the shift from the feudal city to the colonial city as designed by the Spanish Empire. I want to also try to be clear on things like colonizing projects or colonialism, right? Yeah. It's again because having gone through the um, you know, education system myself, right. there there's a sense that you know being a colony is almost a benign thing or this thing mm. that just was. Yeah, great point. And again, this is in that 14th through 19th century space that we're mostly looking at, right? So they're they're major colonizing empires at the time. You know, of course, you know, we have very early on the Portuguese Republic Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the Spanish Empire. Um, Spanish Empire quickly sort of becomes the greater of the two. um, And the Spanish Empire rules the longest um, and becomes the most expansive, but also becomes the most diligent in trying to come up with ways to manage um, Mm -hmm. its sort of space and the populations within them. And so they develop a a variety of techniques that then are lifted, plagiarized, borrowed um, by um, subsequent empires of the French um, and the British um, and also German at various particular times, while other countries like Italy and Denmark and uh, the Netherlands sort of are playing more business, you know, related roles oh, uh-huh. um, in, in various aspects. And so if we're talking about that 1400s to 1900s, we have to sort of 
give the Spanish Empire mm-hmm. um, sort of a front and center seat. Yeah, it's the uh, the empire of of record in some sense, <laughs> right? Correct. Uh, so I really just wanted to kind of be clear on the project, and it's again a thing that seems like just an like the eventualities of historical action, like it just happens, right? Yeah. And I think we just kind of lose sight of like it's it's not hard to talk about, like to talk about how colonies were X, you know, Mexico City was a colonial site for Spain. And we can talk and we're going to talk about how that played out and and that process of of city formation there as well. And as we learn about it, we forget how many people were just literally murdered, destroyed, everything, everything bad you could think about. And and so, yeah, yeah, as a thing we accept. Yeah. Millions upon millions of billions of people just destroyed by the process of this state project. Hopefully that's one of the outcomes of people who read the book mm-hmm. sort of are maybe great, gaining a better appreciation, but not in the fond way of a colony, <laughs> right? Right? Um, right? Because exactly um, right. Um, the idea is is that, one, we all um, are indigenous to some lands, mm-hmm. right, in, in, in some way, and we have developed systems, uh, you know, for ourselves within those spaces um, that we are indigenous to. But then when all of a sudden, you know, those structures that those parties begin to create want to expand itself, you're now encroaching upon other people's indigenous spaces. And that encroachment is not just you just happen to move your fence to your neighbor's, you know, yard. No, that's you in the house painting and decorating. Right, <laughs> you know, and changing the locks of the of the house, and so um, colonialism is the complete and utter control of other territories. And what I say is that it's control of lands and turning them into territories, because territory sort of invokes the notion of now being under control, as opposed to just simply being these sort of environment spaces. And thinking about you know, or staying focused on the colony as being this uh, murder machine. Um, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's then a state. If we st- again start trying to focus in on uh, the Spanish Empire, it's the Spanish Empire looking within its territories and determining that the resources that they are now under control are not enough. The amount of laborers they have are not enough. Uh, the food that they produce right. is not enough. Is there generally a, a, like a literal, like, again, these do come down to monarchical decisions right. frequently. The monarch and the, and his brother yeah. who decide to do X, Y, Z, and they need to raise funds to do it. And these become colonies. Yeah. These become, yeah. It's so weird to think of the literal power of those those tiny little people. It's just a hard thing to get your head around for me anyway. Yeah, and I, I would hate to flatten it in some sense in saying that, yes, all the examples of this expansion are from a running out of resources. Because <laughs> right. um, when in fact, most of these examples, it's actually a greed that begins to take shape. Right, Because right. you already have a greed as an elite class that's You've already You've already taken formed. all the resources to yourself. Exactly. And yeah. So you already have yeah, a class system right, that right. already has made you divine as a ruler, right? Uh, and so now you want more territory and you've you start to hear rumors of some other territories that may not put up as much of a fight. Right. Because as we also know, you know, Europe is in competing, you know, forces. So even though Spanish Empire is quite dominant, uh, war costs, you yeah. know. And so why, why not instead, one, go to spaces in which 
the cost would could be less, right. but also you may be able to acquire resources from these new spaces that could ge- give you even more dominance over your um, competition. Right. Right. And so, you know, colonialism is that effort. And, you know, you needed some type of system to then manage the books. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I would argue that this is why feudalism had to die for capitalism to um, be birthed because feudalism was a good economic system for the castle and the sort of villages around the castle, right? Um, Or the townships that were under the castle walls, right? And if it was a larger territory. But the problem is, is that you can't sort of apply that if you're going to now expand to other territories because you can't build a wall across an ocean for your, you know, for your rulership. And so now there's something else that was needed in capitalism sort of is that prime management system um, to handle currency, handle change, handle payments, because the resources all have um, some type of value. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is part two of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moat, author of The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge. Our focus is on the evolution of the colonial city as developed and codified by the Spanish Empire, a design that has persisted ever since. So, you know, again, a big part of the book is about how, one, how people begin to be made into identities. And your book has, uh, goes through three aspects of how, of what you're calling this, again, the geographies of threat, three aspects of the geographies of threat. One is that the state has to sort of make identities, uh, you know, identify identities or identify people, put them into identities. This is one aspect of the ge- geographies of threat in this particular chapter. When you say that, you know, the, uh, the sort of process of identification, mm. what, what do you mean by that? I mean, what's, how's that happening? Yeah. Um, people who are indigenous to some other territory have their own sense of themselves, mm-hmm. but as the sort of coming in foreign power who's colonizing them, you fix them by um, giving them some type of ascription. So uh, now all of a sudden a population becomes African mm. or a population becomes Indian. And this was a very early way to just get a f- sense of uh, um, fixing a population in some way, not necessarily you know, giving attributes to that, but now they're sort of put into place. This is who they are. And, who they are in relationship to us because we're not that. Right. Um, identification of populations helps to sort of set that stage. But then as you continue to manage that population, you have to sort of come up with ascriptions that aid in placing them in the right relationship to your extraction of those resources. Mm. Um, so might be tied to occupation, might be tied to levels of loyalty, might be tied to levels of being some eventual enemy in some way. And so um, you begin to give attributes and so on. And um, this is what um, I know Nimser calls primitive uh, racialization. Mm -hmm. Um, So you take the Indian and now you ascribe to the Indian senses of laziness and smelliness and, and things like that. And you can cultivate 
not only within that population that's indigenous, but also to your other subjects, some beginning attitude or perspective on that population. And so primitive uh, racialization is a very helpful tool that Nemser develops, but he says that this is just a natural outgrowth of the primitive accumulation, right? And what we know of is, you know, colonialism and slavery are the two sort of engines that gets capitalism underground, you know, on the way, you know, it, it grows from those two things. You use uh, in particular, uh, and you mentioned uh, Dan Nemser and his, and we mentioned this last time too, it's uh, it's an important book and important in, in your own thinking as well. Infrastructure is a race. Right. Um, so I feel like there's a point where you were just like, we were thinking about that book or reading that book and you were just like, this is this is giving me some kind of framework or some kind of real insight into the, into how to take this in other places. Yeah. So even though you know the book is a definitely outgrowth for 2020 and those three months of writing or whatever else, but it's really sort of pulling together thoughts and ideas from other um, particular times. And actually, I had the opportunity of meeting uh, Dan Nemser two or three years before the book came out. Mm-hmm. So he was still formulating his ideas. Um, still, uh, the book was in a draft form. And so he was sort of working through um, this sort of intense study of colonial um, uh, Ciudad de Mexico, Mexico City, right? Yeah. Um, you know, under the Spanish empire. Uh, and, and with him, he brings this sort of notion that in this period of time, race becomes a thing. A race becomes this useful way to identify a population that has first been fixed into some other sort of uh, categorization and now given these other attributes. And so now the Indios and the Negros, you know, become slaves or designated as necessary laborers that are maybe paid very little right. uh, in some way. And so identification of population as the first aspect of you know, geography of the threat is like a form of surveillance um, to keep an eye. Um, because also, uh, as we recall from looking at the book, the Spanish Empire actually um, doesn't begin to do things like segregation um, of these populations until the corn riots of the 1500s. Right. So the city has been already functioning for some period of time. Um, and the corn riot resulted in the Indios Negros and other um, individuals, mixed individuals and some Creoles to some degree, taking over the city mm-hmm. from the rulership uh, for the uh, I think a, a couple days. Yeah, it wasn't very long. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't very long, but it it, it scared the hell out of uh, the crown. Right. And so they began to then figure out spatially where people needed to be in the city to prevent um, a dangerous mixture. So right. you don't want these people sort of now talking with each other um, because a certain dangerous form of dissent could take shape that we can't control. I mean, they could have just easily just fed people, right? <laughs> Which is, you know, I mean, the, the corn riots was about hunger. But the state has no interest. No interest whatsoever. Why because would it, right? It's, not, it's, it's costly. That's right. It's, it's costly, you know, because if I want it all, giving you anything right. is costly. Um, and so the corn riots is about hunger. Instead of, why don't we just give people food? They're like, no, let's try to come up with barrios, na- neighborhoods. We can keep them as far away from each other as possible. Um, and under, stricter rules, curfew, and other um, aspects of uh, spatial governance, or now we call it, you know, city government. <laughs> right. But again, the three aspects, identification of population is uh, what I would call surveillance, um, mm. and is born out of that fear of the corn riots. 
And then uh, the next aspect is identification as threats because you don't identify a population just because you like naming things. Right. You know, you identify a population for a function. Their function is to do things that you need them to do because otherwise they're a threat in some way. And so the level of threat of that population is sort of assessed, you know, in some way. But the threat is the sort of management system. Uh, the third aspect is uh, identification for violence, because ultimately violence is a very functional tool for order. And so these are the three aspects of geography of threat. But, you know, in, in sort of keeping in line with this particular chapter, the chapter is trying to not only give us this history of the city, but to also associate the history of the city as the way in which identification of populations first took shape. Because if we think about the colonial city as a project of colonialism, again, starting from some settlement that grows into a village and a town and then becomes so large it has to be a city, there is an indigenous population outside of the city limits. Right. Uh, and the idea is to bring that indigenous population inside the city limits because once you do so, they no longer are indigenous. They're now your subjects. Right. Uh, they could be taxed. Um, they could be controlled, they could be watched. Um, and so a city becomes this organizing instrument to bring all things within. We're going to take a quick break with the Goody Mobs Free off of the 1995 release, Soul Food. When we return to part two of The State Made Visible, we'll focus on the methods used to concentrate and weaken the resistance of colonial populations. Lord, it's so hard living this life, a constant struggle each and every day. Some wonder why I'd rather die than to continue living this way. Many are blind and cannot find the truth because no one seems to but I won't accept that this is how it's gonna be. Therefore, you got to let me and my people go. Cause I wanna be free. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is part two of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moat, author of The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge. One of the things that was interesting about that process, too, is that along the way, there are particular groups that are named and do particular functions that also kind of fall out of that function. Like the function no longer becomes useful. Yeah. I think it was the, in this particular space, it was the Mestizo yeah, uh, yeah. that, you know, right. was kind of a functionary, a, a bureaucratic functionary maybe, was serving as a particular Correct. management structure for, yeah. for the actual Spanish in, in the city. People didn't stay in their roles, their designated roles that the crown developed. So we know that the Costa, the, the caste system mm -hmm. that was highly elaborate under the Spanish, um, while we can sort of look at the images and wow, like we can sort of think 132 different sort of yeah. categories and so on. People themselves on a day-to-day -day basis didn't operate in that way. Right. Um, 
they weren't going to the restaurant that was managed by the Creole right. or um, when they needed uh, deck work, they didn't just go to the Negros, right, <laughs> to, hey, build my deck, you know. Right. Um, so people kind of violated the CASTA system um, for all types of purposes, uh, intimate social relationships, you know, right. economic relationships. So, yes, you know, people did not sort of uh, follow their roles. And so this is another reason why, again, Nimster, I think, is just not only invaluable to this book, but he's somebody that we should also all sort of think about in relationship to this particular analysis of Mexico City. He doesn't try to talk about the modern period of time, but I do. Right. <laughs> and so right. I'm trying to um, take his point. And, and bring it into the present day. So he talks about these four areas of concentration um, that derive from this colonial city project of Mexico City. And uh, those four forms of concentration are uh, congregation, which is what I already described, which is bringing mm -hmm. the indigenous population into the city um, so that they no longer are, are indigenous. Uh, and then there's segregation, which is what we just talked, trying to talk about in terms of the you know, coming up with distinctive neighborhoods, uh, moving a population from one place to another, who's in the center of the, of the city and who's on the outskirts of the city, right. what neighborhoods are next to each other and for what purposes, and what are the things that are then placed into those neighborhoods? Segregation. Uh, there's enclosure, um, and Nimtra sort of describes enclosure, yes, as one obvious way that we can think about is prisons, uh, form of carceral uh, systems, but also schools um, are enclosures that are, both of those are disciplinary tools tools to educate a population. You know, you put people in prison so that then they come out and they know better, right? Um, and, you know, you put people in school so they come out and they know better, right? right? right. Um, so enclosure um, is that uh, sort of third aspect and the last aspect, which I think is uh, such a brilliant um uh, addition is the collection. Uh, Nimsa spends time talking about it, of course, that people are not in the thought pattern of the collection, but he's setting the stage for the collection of plants, the bot, you know, right. the botanist ex experts, and uh, that will sort of define uh, different sorts of species and their relationships and how one can thrive with water or one can thrive without water and which plant needs more sun than others. Um, but the other part that comes from that is botany is that first field mm -hmm. that um, defines race separate from the church. Because if we go back to Carl Linnaeus, he was a botanist and he's the first person that helps to define race on purely purely scientific grounds. Observable yeah. traits, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is part two of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moat, author of The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge. Our focus is on the evolution of the colonial city as developed and codified by the Spanish Empire, a design that has persisted ever since. The interesting thing about botany, obviously, uh, or about the idea of science is, is a part of this, right? The idea of being able to, and you mentioned Linnaeus was the kind of the first, the father of categorization, right? To yeah, say, yeah. let's put these things in classes. So again, we can name them, order them, control them. All of this really is a sort of a process of order and control, right? I mean, completely. You got you to gotta do it that way. Yeah, completely. Um, but for me, I'm trying to also um, connect it to the same point that Nemser is coming up with is it's it's all tied to infrastructure. Right. So there's one way to sort of 
think about race as being socially constructed, which we sort of owe a great deal from, you know, to Du Bois. But actually, technically, I'm making the argument from a reading of Nimser that no, um, race is spatially produced mm. because if you do not fix the population into a distinctive area uh, and ascribe that population traits as long as well as that neighborhood area, we won't maintain that imagination of what they are, um, which is, again, remember the faults of the, uh, the initial Spanish ca- Costa system just coming up with a, a caste system. You know, people didn't sort of, right. you know, stick to that. Um, but once you come up with distinctive neighborhoods. Yeah, you're a caste and then you go here. Exactly. And it becomes an infrastructure. Right. And and that still plays out to the present day. If you don't have a border and people outside the border, then, you know, you would cease to sort of think of those people as the beyond border people. Right. right? You know, they're just another population of people. Right. Um, but having this sort of spatial arrangement helps to produce race. Uh, and so, again, race is spatially produced. So you get social construction because of the space. But again, I'm, I'm also connecting the point that under these colonial circumstances, just as we talked about cartography and the maps, Spain and trying to manage these systems or manage these cities and their colonies had to regulate their own representatives mm-hmm. because in different places, different representatives were just doing way too much, right? Um, in the Caribbean, they would just murder with forced labor um, right. most of the enslaved population, that uh, African population that would be brought there. And so they constantly had to replenish more and more enslaved populations after they already decimated the islands of the indigenous population. The laws of the Indies becomes this sort of management tool to keep the Spaniards in check and to structure a way of how to build a settlement and how to grow a city. And there's it, actually like a, a how-to guide in, in it, some sense, right? And it is, yeah. And, and it's not even like it is, right? <laughs> because gotcha. when we look through them, it they give you uh, the measurements of roads, the directions in which the road should take, uh, the construction of a plaza in the center, um, and the direction that plaza should be directed. So not only on a, in a diagonal, but you need to have you know all the cardinal points of north, south, east, and west so that wind can flow through the streets. Um, and so the city grid is built and created by the Spaniards mm. um, in Mexico City and other places in Mexico. And then, our, then it's transported to all of these other Spanish colonies, whether it's in the Philippines and Asia, or what would become the Philippines and Asia. And and like I said, it's then mimicked very quickly by the French and then eventually the British. But it takes some time for the British to sort of adopt it because as we can sort of think about what would become the United States, you know, when we think about present day Boston and these areas, they follow some very old Mm. English um, city planning structures. But once we begin to move away from that area, uh, we see the grid becomes the dominant organizing principle for all cities thereafter. Mm. Um, And so you don't see the same structures that we see in that sort of area of New England, right? So it's, it's so crucial to sort of think about this um, colonial period because I'm saying, making the argument if we're still maintaining the grid right. to this present day alongside the city block, which is also a creation of right. the Spanish, the ways in which populations were also managed within those cities 
had to have also been carried sure. you know, throughout history. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah. It's almost like a mechanical form that you replicate and it replicates the kinds of beings that will be producing the resource or you know, be able to produce the things that you get whatever money and power out of that the state, whoever that is at that time, is just going to make use of that particular form yeah. over and over and over again. And that we live in it means that we're still products of it. It right? still produces the subject, yeah. the subjected why would um, city planners throughout all of these um, histories just take the city grid? Why would you not take um, the segregated neighborhood or the enclosure? That's what the city grid's for. Yeah. yeah. To make those spaces serve that ideology. Correct. To serve the state. Yeah. And the, and the roads are there for circulation. And on one hand, yes, it's for airflow, but also to get the money and resources out of the city and to the crown. The false rivers, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Ah! I beg, let us get down into another on-the-ground spiritual game. I beg, after my paso paso, we go to help me end down with when, because, them go here, when, yeah. It's time for our final break. This is Fela Kuti with O-D-O-O, where the true name of the state is always soldier come, soldier go. More with Rasul Mowat on the geographies of threat and the production of violence when interchange returns. Oh! When the one to call, when the one to call, when the one to call, Nigerian government, them DMN, federal military government. For Libya, them give name, Liberational Council. For Liberia, them give name, Redemptional Council. For Zaire, them give name, Revolutionary Council. Them get different, different names for different, different governments. But the correct name for them now, Soldier Go, Soldier Come. Soldier Go, Soldier Come. Soldier Go, Soldier Come. Soldier Go, Soldier Come. Federal ability to the government. Soldier Go, Soldier Come. Liberation Council. Soldier Go, Soldier Come. Redemption Council. Soldier Go, Soldier Revolutionary Council. Soldier Go, Soldier Soldier go, soldier come. Soldier go, soldier come. Soldier go, soldier come. Soldier go, soldier come. When I'm passing through one yaradua, shopping in full and go. Them put civilian friends for there. Them shout Second Republic. People will not know they happy. People will know them they look. Then baptize the civilian government, then name them federal government. Me I know my their name, me I call them soldier, put soldier go. Yay! Welcome back to Interchange in our final segment of part two of The State Made Visible with Rasul Mowat. We'll see how the French state redesigned the Paris streets as a response to the revolutionary tactics of the workers in 1848. And it was not for the sake of beautification. The civilian governments with them day, the soldier they protected them. When our lives zero lose small, it go go no cool head for wall. 
When our life zero lose small, it go go no cool head for TV. When our life zero lose small, it go go no cool head for stone. I guess you go through a couple of things um, in terms of how things are, are redesigned later too in these imperial cities, right? You talk about Paris going through a redesign and, mm, and, yeah, and that right. also is kind of fascinating. It literally becomes like a showcase of power, and you know, just in, in how it's set up and then how it forces your yeah. kind of attention in certain ways. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, before I can talk about Paris, we can sort of see that, you know, the like I said, the uh, the process the grid is repeated throughout all of these colonies mm-hmm. of the Spanish Empire, and so the book tries to capture that with just bombarding you with all these maps from um, roughly about 1500s to 1700s. And then uh, you begin to take notice that the grid is now applied to the expanding city of Sevilla, Seville, you know, in Spain and other places, right? Um, you know, so that where the the old city is at, you know, the the name of the old city is um, the the narrow streets um, right. that sort of wind around all around the place, and then the new part of the city is now with the grid. We also have to remember that Sevilla and other spaces under the Spanish Empire, you know, there were enslaved populations um, and indigenous populations being sent back to those places too. Columbus was a mercenary right. and a slaver. And so he was bringing these people back, say, look at, look at what I brought. And it wasn't just like right. bags of gold. It was a living person. They needed to be put somewhere. Yeah. And yeah. so now all of a sudden you have these uh, different people who are now in um, the city. And so now you have to think about neighborhood areas in the imperial city mm. because they become unruly, you know, supposedly in those right. cities. Um, other empires are slow to adopt uh, that structure. And we begin to see some of the mistakes of adopting it later when we get to the 1800s, uh, when one of the sort of famous revolutions of um, the people in, in, in France, 1871, when the uh, commune was developed and pretty much where uh, veterans of the military joined up with everyday folk and they sort of blocked the roads, barricaded uh, themselves uh, within it and also provided sort of a prevention of the crown from entering these mm-hmm. locations and pretty much ruled the interior of these neighborhood areas. Once that revolution fell and no longer continued, then there was a massive um, redesign of the city roads. During this time period, the city streets were narrow mm-hmm. and um, and could be blockaded easily. Could be blockaded right, easily right. because it didn't take too much, right, you know. Right? right? You know, you, just a couple of tables, right, <laughs> you know, right. here and there, and um, sandbags. But you know, now with this redesign, it would take now probably three hundred tables and sandbags, right. right, to block the streets. And uh, one of the key city planners that are that's commissioned is Houseman, and so Paris goes under a Housemanization of Paris, in which these roads, these streets are widened, so buildings are torn down, uh, and so forth, and when people go to modern Paris today, reason why you have these large boulevards are because um, the crown wanted to prevent another revolution that would control the city, not for the sense of beauty. Yeah, not right? to yeah beautify the the gorgeous Paris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, there, I mean, there is of course rhetoric that sort of talks about you know the light shines through you right. know the streets now or whatever else, but the intent was 
definitely for the prevention of future revolutions. Well, the rhetoric always serves power too, then. Correct, right? correct, <laughs> correct. can't escape it. Correct. The redesign into these 20 district zones, I know that um, you know we had a conversation with uh, Brett Story about s- some ways in which the uh, U.S. in particular is just um, organized in a prison system for the most part. The At least the current iteration of the state is organized via prison um, ideologies, I suppose. Um, and But she points out that one of the problems with, I think it was St. Louis, was just the way it was you know, hacked up in these municipal regions, right? Like 91 municipalities in St. Louis and generally serving this particular segregation space, right? So, you know, there are ways in which, again, the clarity of how these planning modes serve not to make things better for people living in them, but to manage people to serve the functions they need to serve for the state or to manage disposable populations so they don't bother the state, right? Oh, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's a big, big part of it is how, how to deal with the surplus and disposable population, right? Yeah, yeah. And so um, if the city is um, connected to or in the midst of a, a natural land formation, now that land formation could be a very easy um, uh, wall for an undesirable population. So um, they're on the other side of the river. Right. Right. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is part two of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moat, author of The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge. Our focus is on the evolution of the colonial city as developed and codified by the Spanish Empire a design that has persisted ever since. There are a couple of things in the book that I wasn't quite sure of how to understand sometimes. Like one part is you talk about leisure. Like I understand that there's no such thing as leisure per se. Mm-hmm, <laughs> like mm-hmm, like right. it's a construct as well. So yeah. leisure is an idea that, that works within this same thinking about this geography, right? Right. Can you talk a little bit about le- how leisure fits into your? Yeah, area? I mean, of course, I'm you know coming out of a field of leisure studies, right. but the city itself can't just sort of like just dump people in there and just let them you know mm. go at it. Right. And so this is now the city becomes this um, focusing tool for the creation of what I call the fabricated society, mm. which is just society, right? right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know right, right. Uh, and, and so why it's called a fabrication is that it's not um, something that we would naturally sort of create for ourselves. Right. It is just what we're creating off of what we're given. Leisure is one of those things or the fabricated society uh, that's birth, um, especially in the 1800s and happens to be especially most pronouncedly coming out of Paris, you know, um, and so we start seeing the cafes and the salons and so on take shape in the parks that people walk through. Um, and they also become a nice um, calming down right. of the of descent. For me, leisure is a tool um, for um, a population to sort of maintain the order, you know, through beautification programs and you know, structures and so forth. That may be different from a lot of my colleagues who are you know, who study uh, leisure in that particular way, but that is what it's uh, for. It doesn't mean that um, that's all it could be, mm-hmm. uh, because even in a fabricated society, I mean, the, the state has chosen to rule so much. So that means they can't rule everything, though. Right. 
this is also ways in which even within a city and even within the fabricated society, we can sort of imagine very different things and very m- much counter things to right. what the state has envisioned for us. We began with the idea that history um, doesn't repeat itself, that state power repeats itself in right. some form throughout history. Generally, when we talk about these things, we understand the futility that really is a part of this, mm-hmm. you know. So a point of this is that you are continually reproducing the state's ideologies. Yeah. You are. You're doing it. Even as you're wanting not to do it, you're probably doing it. Correct. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so recognizing it is obviously a first step. Studying it, trying to understand it as it as it works. You know, I mentioned also in terms of trying to think about our highway projects, mm. right? To me, uh, anytime I look at a map and I see highways and where they go, I always think what what military bases are around? What's this new road really for? Right. But that's Nimsha's point of infrastructure. He uses the term infrastructure. And I think a lot of people immediately just think about, oh, he must be referring to um, the segregated neighborhood, mm-hmm. right? Um, the ghetto that maybe takes shape. And no, what he means by infrastructure are just all of the systems that are layered on top of each other that allow power to constantly right. repeat itself um, and the relationships to power that people will have. Okay. Um, and so if they're supposed to be beaten to submission, okay. then the infrastructure will constantly sort of remind them of their place, whether it's in the, the width of the roads, the distance from places of any importance, access to good, clean water in this present day and age, you know, Wi-Fi, you know, um, and cable services, you know, and all these types of things that we do know are not the same throughout a city. Um, There are differences in terms of the access to things, the function of things um, in different parts of the city. And that's not by accident. Right. Nothing's by accident. <laughs> Nothing is by accident whatsoever. <laughs> but all of this is still, you know, what we sort of said we wanted to really um, harp on within this um, conversation is colonialism, right. right? Is this engine. And without colonialism, all of this wouldn't even come to be. Uh, you know, in this chapter two, I think the idea that, this, that the state sends its vagabonds and thieves and uh, ahead Right into these unknown spaces right. to settle it, basically, or to be murdered or killed themselves, right. or to be to deal with the native population, right? Yeah, uh, and yeah. so that afterwards, you know, land speculators come along and build the the colony proper. I suppose correct, correct. Yeah. But yeah, no, um, you know, I try to situate or at least try to you know maintain a focus that colonialism is a factory that uh, madness is fa- is manufactured. Mm. When we sort of think about it in that particular way, it keeps us sort of sane and trying to recognize that a colony um, is just for extraction and dispossession. That's all it does. Uh, and so the city then just becomes the, the device to um, make that happen. That's our show. This is Le Grand Cali with Independence Cha Cha, released in 1960. Grand Cali was a Congolese singer and bandleader, considered the father of modern Congolese music. Again, this was part two of The State Made Visible, a three-part conversation with Rasul Mowat about his book, The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, The State and the City Between Us, published by Rutledge. Join us next week for part three, Please check out the web posting at wfhb.org for links to part one and related content. I'm Doug Storm. 
I produced this episode of Interchange with music assistance from Rasul Mowat. Kate Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. And if I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't.